0: Welcome everyone to a special webinar by Natural Gas World on the ongoing energy crisis in Europe and the outlook for Russian gas. My name is Joseph Murphy and today I will be moderating a discussion between Thierry Bros, a professor at Sciences Po Paris and a contributor to NGW, and Anne-Sophie Corbeau, a global research scholar at the Centre on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. Welcome, both of you. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. thank you. So to start off with, um, I've discussed this subject with both of you on several occasions and with a lot of other people. Um, but for the benefit of our listeners, could we maybe summarize what, uh, briefly, if you can, uh, what has led to the current energy crisis in Europe? And perhaps we can narrow it down to uh, the factors that have exacerbated it over the past year. Barring Russian actions, which are somewhat obvious.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, Maybe I can start. So sure, I think, you no, know,
1: it was. It was a mixture of demand-side factor and supply-side factor. So on the demand side, we had a very strong recovery as soon as 2021. We had exceptional weather events, like very cold weather at the beginning of 2021, also very hot summers. Uh, We had also lower wind availability, for example, in mid-2021. We had also lower hydro availability, and we can see that this year again in uh, in Europe. And we had also uh, the fact that pretty much all the commodities saw their prices increase. And on the supply side for natural gas, in particular after years of, you know, limited investments in upstream, we had also a lot of issues on the LNG side. And then came Russia.
2: Jerry, Yes, perhaps I can add, I think, as Anthony sophie stated rightly, I mean, it's uh, it's energy crisis. I mean, uh, we started with uh, oil, gas and electricity. Uh, we started with oil just post-co- post-COVID recovery. Uh, And on the gas side, I mean, this has been exacerbated since 2021, because remember, there have been weaponization of gas uh, early uh, 2021, when Russia started Mm -hmm. to to stop selling spot uh, volumes, and then uh, mid-2021, when Russia didn't uh, refill their European gas storage. So this is what we have on the gas and on the electricity. Because we are in Europe, we also have the uh, nuclear issue in France, which uh, Mm -hmm. means that uh, we are facing a, a crisis of old fuels because there is, uh, as uh, Anne-Sophie mentioned it, at the end of the day, there is no spare uh, capacity any, uh, anywhere. Not in uh, oil because OPEC doesn't want to release it, not in gas because it was in the hands of gas from not in electricity because it was in the hands of ODF.
0: Mm-hmm. And I suppose on the nuclear side, another factor was the German closure of, of nuclear plants at the, at the start of the year.
2: Yes, but I mean, uh, I wouldn't mention uh, Germany because then you will have to mention Germany at each and single uh, step of this energy crisis. I mean, it has been engineered mm-hmm. by uh, Germany in, in a big way. So, I mean, Germany mm-hmm. is completely illiterate in uh, energy policy. So I think we have to really uh, make it without Germany. Mm-hmm. I see.
1: So just maybe to put things in context, I mean, you know, you have to understand that it's not only nuclear, which is a problem and which is basically creating a crisis for electricity as well. This is also hydro. So uh, hydro has declined by almost 25% uh, over the first 10 months of 2022. So this is quite substantial. And on top of that, there is a nuclear in France and in Germany. And in order to replace that, well, of course, you know, we are developing, we are building more wind and solar, and they are contributing, but at the same time, you need to add or you need to basically have coal coming back, mm-hmm. and on top of that, gas power generation is increasing. So we are facing a significant gas supply crisis, however, in the power generation sector, we still have natural gas demand increasing because gas fire generation is needed in order to help replacing nuclear and hydro. So that's very important to understand that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's been months of discussions about introducing an EU gas price cap. Now, as you know, there hasn't been all that much progress on that front. A lot of disagreement between the member states on uh, what form the cap should take. Um, so it might be a pointless uh, uh, question to ask at this point. But is such a cap feasible? Is it is it desirable? Uh, Thierry, why don't you start?
2: Well, I I think we started with the crisis, but first, we also have to recognize that uh, security of supply has been guaranteed by the market. It's thanks to the market that we are now having uh, gas because LNG has been rerouted away from Asia into Europe. So uh, traders uh, did manage security of supply. Uh, It happened at extremely high prices, which is not making politicians happy. And so uh, politicians may interfere. But what could be the outcome of this is lower prices, but a lower security of supply. And this is the choice Mm -hmm. they have to do. Um, Do they rely on market to provide this security of supply? If yes, then leave it as it is. If they want to interfere, um, we know that uh, policymakers are very uh, not knowledgeable or completely uh, illegible not uh, knowledgeable in uh, energy. And so therefore, well, if they want to uh, go for a price cap it will Mm. fail and it will uh, make security of supply at risk in Europe. And Sophie?
1: Yeah, I think it can be potentially extremely dangerous to interfere with the wholesale market because you may have some unintended consequences. So look at what happened, for example, in Spain. So, you know, they had these uh, price caps for natural gas in, you know, the power sector. And indeed, uh, they managed to reduce the electricity uh, prices. However, it has also triggered a very substantial increase in gas-fired generation there, which has also been exacerbated by the fact that they have low hydro. But, you know, you can have unintended consequences, and I would be very careful about, you know, the interference in the wholesale market. What I think could maybe done is to try to cap the volatility uh, in the daily changes uh, on the global on, on the wholesale market, because indeed it has been quite exceptional. We have seen uh, gas prices during days increasing by, you know, the equivalent of uh, one hundred dollars per barrel. So when you mm-hmm. think of that, you know, in energy terms, this is like. How do we have a daily increase of that magnitude? So I think there might be things that we can do here. But you know, what politicians are also unhappy about is the disconnect between TTF and what is representing the northwestern European LNG price or marker. And this is also reflecting the fact that we don't have enough LNG import capacity in northwestern Europe. So this is an infrastructure problem.
2: Mm-hmm. Perhaps I I, I would add to this that uh, uh, there there is this cap that I think both of us agree it's going to fail. But there is something on the table of the European Commission that could be very interesting and could help uh, the Europeans at the end of the day. It is Mm -hmm. uh, to rethink the pricing of the electricity market. I mean, the pricing of the electricity market was done... uh, uh, it was a no-brainer. we did it exactly the same as we did for the oil and gas i.e the marginal electron set the price of all electrons and if you do this at the end of the day it is the electron that is produced with a coal fire power plant or a gas fire power plant and pays for the co2 price that mm-hmm. makes the price of all electrons which means that uh, we were going to face green inflation anyway because of higher CO2 prices anyway uh, and uh, europe the european commission could rethink, the electricity pricing because if they were to do this in a successful way then we could have lower electricity prices one way or another I mean not for the gas firepower plant or not for the coal firepower plant but for the average and this could benefit all Europeans at the end of the day and this is going to happen perhaps in Q1 2023 and hopefully it will be successful.
0: Mm -hmm. So sticking with the subject of criticism of policy Can we talk about some mistakes that you feel policymakers have made this year that um, may have exacerbated the crisis, may have, um, well, may have not been effective solutions to the crisis? Uh, And Sophie?
1: Well, I think, you know, I mean, you would also have to basically go back in history. I mean, you know, um, if you are looking at the numbers, we started to become even more dependent on Russian pipeline gas just after the invasion of Crimea. So, you know, it's a little bit ironic that, you know, we have come to this situation and everybody found that normal. Also, I mean, you know, the expansion of Nord Stream 2, I mean, when you are looking at the numbers, Germany is a 90 BCM market, we were looking at having 110 billion cubic market meters of Russian uh, um, pipeline gas coming directly to Germany. I mean, you know, it sounds completely crazy that we went there. And also basically, I mean, Germany went too far and too fast with, you know, the nuclear uh, uh, I mean, decommissioning, which is mm-hmm. also creating problems. And I, I could say, you know, I mean, France also uh, was engaged on that road of decommissioning, but it was not going very fast. So, fortunately, we have not decommissioned too many uh, nuclear power plants. But earlier this year, I think, you know, basically the problem that I saw was uh, I mean, there, there is a big misunderstanding about how Putin could react. And you put sanctions on coal, you put sanctions on oil, and you still expect natural gas to continue to flow. I mean, you know, psychology 101, how exactly were we expecting Putin to continue to behave as normal? And then suddenly they realized, oh, Nord Stream 1, you know, the flows are starting to be reduced hey, you know, I mean, this is, you know, normal geopolitical games. I mean, we are hitting him, he's hitting us back, and he's hitting us back exactly where it's very painful. So I I think, you know, for me, I mean, there is a total lack of understanding of how Mr. Putin works, and this is really bad, because, you know, policymakers, you know, should understand that, at least. I mean, they they should have a a good experience of Mr. Putin's behavior by now.
0: So you didn't buy into the turbine uh, argument for why Nord Stream? One Does flow anybody? Was
1: reduced. <laughs> of course not, of course not. But, you know, I mean, I have met a few uh, European Commission officials and they said, oh, we have managed to reduce pipeline imports of Russian gas. And I'm like, no, you have not. Putin has reduced exports to Europe. By the way, LNG is still flowing. Russian LNG is still flowing, which I think is good for everybody. But it's Mr. Putin who is driving the show. It's not the European Commission. Mm-hmm. Jerry, something to
2: add? Yeah, full support of when uh, Anthony stated, I would add that uh, European policymakers have zero knowledge in energy. And so therefore, I mean, uh, go back to uh, what happened when uh, Russia didn't refill their storage uh, in uh, the European Union back uh, Mm -hmm. in Q3 uh, 2021. I mean, Vladimir Putin stated, oh, I'm going to do it soon. And then nothing happened. And nobody at the European Commission uh, called on this and stated, well, there is a problem here. And I think weaponization of gas was already there at this time. So that's the first element that I'll add to, to Sophie. Uh, the, the other thing, I think uh, not only do they have zero knowledge, but they are very dogmatic. And I think this is the main problem here. And um, mm-hmm. remember, this commission started thinking that where the energy union that... Uh, Commission was uh, had just uh, implemented is not green enough. So we will go for the green deal. And then uh, we went from repower EU. So every single uh, uh, quarter, we are getting greener in what's going to happen in 2030 or 2050. But at the end of the day, we are burning more coal and we are emitting more CO2. And, and I think that's really the problem of knowledge. I mean, when I hear a policymaker in Brussels talking about hydrogen to solve this crisis, I know not only they have not the knowledge, but I'm not even sure they want to solve the crisis. I mean, hydrogen isn't going to solve uh, and to make us uh, energy efficient and uh, energy abundant energy uh, cheap uh, in the coming uh, years or even decades. So so maybe if I can add one point
1: Um, on demand, you know, I think maybe policymakers reacted very slowly to be, you know, very frank in front of all the citizens to say it's going to be really tough. We should start reducing our demand now. It was written down, but, you know, I mean who has basically looked at the European Commission, you know, play your part, etc. I mean, how mm-hmm. was it widely distributed to everybody in Europe? We should have started really talking seriously about, you know, our demand, not only natural gas, but also electricity demand as soon as March. And this is also, looking back at, you know, what has been done or not done on energy efficiency. I think, you know, energy efficiency has always been, you know, the poor sibling of the whole family. There was never any agreement to do enough on that. And suddenly people realize, oh, actually, you know, we need to do something on demand and on supply. And the demand side has never been Done enough. And now what do we see? Well, the industrial sector is the adjustment variable. And this is dramatic. This is an absolute disaster. When I see, you know, officials from government saying, oh, it's great, we have minus 30% of gas demand during the month. Hello, do you actually realize that this now means that some companies are running out of business? I mean, Mm -hmm. they, they are going to fire people. And this is really bad. I mean, you know, energy intensive industries, I have talked to a lot of them. I mean, they are really worried about the next three years.
2: Yes, I would add deindustrialization in Europe has started. And again, policymakers have not understood that uh, uh, the number that they think are right are in fact very wrong in terms of uh, our uh, power and our energy supply.
0: So moving forwards, uh, so EU gas storage, Sites are practically full now. Um, we've seen a more or less steady decline in the TTF prices um, since late October, uh, later uh, August, the late o- August uh, spike. Um, so the outlook for this winter, it's it's obviously very tough, and you know prices are still extremely high. Um, but it's looking maybe quite a lot better than it. The outlook is looking quite a lot better than it was, uh, you know, six months ago. Um, But as as you both noted to me before, the big challenge, the bigger challenge will be next winter. Uh, Can you walk me through why that will be the the big the big moment?
1: So just, you know, to understand, so Europe in 2021 was the European Union, sorry, was about 400 billion cubic meter of market. Russian pipeline gas, 140. This year, I think we are going to be down to 60 BCM of Russian pipeline gas. So we have lost 80 BCM. Mm-hmm. We are going to replace that, I think, again, I'm estimating because, you know, the year is not over, but by about 50 billion cubic meters of all alternative supplies, including LNG, Norwegian gas, etc., cetera, et cetera, Some of which have actually declined, Norve- uh, North African gas and domestic production. Then we needed to increase the gas into storage. So again, this is a deficit. So in order to do that, well, gas demand had to decline by 40 BCM, which is basically our 10% of gas demand. Mm -hmm. Now, when you are looking at where we are in terms of Russian pipeline gas right now, we are roughly at 25 BCM, there is still gas going through Ukraine. I don't know how this is still possible given, you know, all the missiles and the rockets which are flying there, and going through Turkey. So 25 BCM maybe next year, So we are moving from 60 to 25. So we are going to miss another 35 billion cubic meters. Well, I don't know where this is going to come from. I mean, you know, LNG uh, supply is going to increase at a very moderate pace over the next uh, few years. Especially we have big uncertainty about the only big project over the next few years, which is Russia uh, Arctic LNG2. Mm So there might be some further demand adjustments to be done.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, the outlook for Arctic LNG two is obviously quite quite uncertain, considering the um, suppliers, the contractors pulling out. You know, Total uh, Total uh, Energies um, freezing
2: its investments and sanctions and
0: everything else. Uh, Thierry.
2: I fully agree. I mean, I have nothing to add to uh, Anne-Sophie's numbers. I mean, and as Anne-Sophie stated, I will rephrase it perhaps in, in a more brutal way. It's going to be further <laughs> demand destruction. And uh, I mean, uh, we, we have some policymakers in uh, in France or in, uh, in Germany or in Brussels talking about uh, uh, industrialization of europe i mean what we are going to see under our own eyes is a massive deindustrialization. and please keep in mind when those plants are closing down some will never reopen because some will look at the uh, gas price the electricity price and we think well there is no way we can operate a business in europe because gas prices will be forever higher than in the middle east than in in the us and so therefore they will move and uh, I think, again, going back to uh, people talking about green uh, steel uh, are misleading the public. I mean, there won't be Mm -hmm. any green steel in Europe. Uh, There won't be any steel produced in, in Europe, full stop.
1: This is a little bit ironic because, you know, it's coming at a time when uh, following COVID, we said, okay, I mean, we need to basically reshore some industry. So, for example, we found out that in terms of pharmaceutical products, we were so dependent on China that it was a big problem during COVID. Mm -hmm. We also realized that, you know, uh, we need also to be more independent in terms of batteries, in terms of the electrolyzer. So how exactly are we going to build all these factories which are absolutely necessary in order to ensure our green future if there is no energy or not enough energy during the next three years? And I still am looking for a policymaker or politician who can actually answer that question because it's all very good to say, yeah, we are going to build all these electrolyzers, etc. How?
2: Yes, uh, answer without using what I call magic mask. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard that
0: phrase from you uh, quite a few times. <laughs> Um, So let's look to more to uh, Russia's position. Um, So recently we've been hearing from Putin about uh, this idea of creating a gas hub for European supplies in Turkey. Now given the steep decline in Russian supplies to Europe, what is really the
2: thinking here? Theory.
1: political statement.
2: Well, uh, Yes, I was going to say, I mean, we have to get used to, at, at, well, as Anne-Sophie was stating, to the uncertainty principle that Vladimir Putin is throwing on us. So he's uh, mm-hmm. throwing uh, sentences, he's throwing diktat, he's throwing ukas, and uh, we have uh, to uh, understand if this is uh, real or not. I mean, he cuts gas, so that's real, and then he throws a few sentences. Um, and so mm-hmm. I don't think it, it matters. But I think we have to uh, understand that. uh, uh, I believe that uh, today Gazprom is, uh, uh, the head of Gazprom is not uh, in the company, it's at the Kremlin level. And Mm -hmm. I believe that uh, uh, if you think about the uh, way Vladimir Putin could uh, interact in this uh, um, energy war, because he's uh, having an energy war, or or even two energy wars, one in Ukraine, as Anne-Sophie was saying, with uh, uh, missile flying all over the place, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, one in Europe with weaponization of, of gas. He can uh, uh, perhaps uh, reduce further supply. I don't think uh, it will go to zero, but it can reduce further supply. I think there will be still gas going through a uh, uh, Turk stream. I mean, Ukraine is a big uncertainty, but he can also increase a gas supply via Ukraine. I mean, he has a contract there, so he can do this. So, we have to get used to the fact that we don't know what the future is going to be, and we have to act accordingly and to be in a position to be more resilient and to be less dependent on Russia. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's
0: obviously very difficult to predict what will happen um, in Ukraine, um, and it's very—it's hard to—it's hard to predict. Um, you know how much gas Russian gas will be relying on in, in say, ten years. But I mean, it's fair to say that it will be substantially. It's very likely to be substantially less than it has been in in previous years. So, uh, Moscow's response is to kind of accelerate its Asian pivot, um, primarily via pipeline, building a new pipeline to China uh, through Mongolia and, you know, potentially another one um, through the Far East uh, and also in LNG form to to other Asian markets. Um, how formidable a challenge do you think sanctions and Russia's broader economic isolation pose to these efforts? And, um, you know, over what time frame could Russia realistically expand its business in Asia?
1: So I think, uh, first of all, Russia is already increasing its uh, pipeline exports to China, because there Mm -hmm. is a power of Siberia 1 pipeline, which is currently ramping up. Uh, Mm -hmm. The second pipeline that you are talking about, which would be about 50 billion cubic meters, has not been sanctioned yet. And there is a fundamental question on whether China wants to be more dependent on Russia because they already have this 38 BCM pipeline. Then there is another pipeline which was agreed upon at the Olympic Winter Games. So that would make Mm -hmm. it almost 50 billion cubic meters. Then there is all the LNG that China has contracted from the different uh, places, in particular, Yamal LNG and Arctic LNG too in Russia. And we are seeing also, at the same time, that uh, China is looking at diversifying its LNG supplies. Sinopec just signed the largest deal ever mm-hmm. in terms of length and in terms of volumes, you know, four million ton per annum over 27 years. This is huge. And this is with Qatar. So, you know, they are very clever. They don't want to put all their eggs in the same basket. Mm-hmm. So if I were Mr. Putin, you know, I would be also a little bit worried about being too dependent on China. At the same time, I think, and I have been saying that many times, uh, I think Putin can play the LNG card and, you know, offer to potential friendly countries. And I'm looking at, you know, a certain number of Southeast Asian countries which are really suffering from the situation of very high spot prices. Okay, guys, you know, you want to be my friends. I am going to give you uh, this spot energy, which usually goes to you know, these unfriendly countries. We are going to sign the contracts and it's going to be sold at all index prices. You know, Given the situation now, you could really wonder what would happen. I mean, maybe some countries will say, okay, I'm signing the deal. I mean, I need energy.
2: Thierry? On, on on China and, and Russia, I would add uh, to what Anne-Sophie stated that uh, China has a very uh, unique and very good diversification of uh, supply uh, strategy. It lacks storage. So so you have to understand that China has to uh, dimension its uh, gas input for a plain winter, which is not exactly the way we we, we do in Europe or in other places. Mm -hmm. And uh, after the uh, massive uh, deal with Qatar, I think China may sign a little bit more with Russia. But again, uh, it will be uh, additional volumes. It's not going to be a massive amount, and it's going to be at China's price level. So I think uh, I'm not sure that Vladimir Putin will make a lot of money here. But that's the only Mm -hmm. route he has, Uh, and China is playing the the card extremely smartly. And uh, I think they will get perhaps some additional pipe or LNG from Russia, but at a huge discount going forward. Uh, And remember. Mm the uh, power of Siberia one and Sophie was mentioning uh, the signing of this contract ju- came just after the Crimea annexation at a price level that is unknown but believed to be uh, good for China. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah and another thing to note is how long that contract took to negotiate I mean it was it was a decade it was 15 years I as mean, well it, it, maybe two decades
2: in from its original conception um, and, and it was signed just after the Crimean annexation which I yeah. think then can give you another idea of uh, the the power the Chinese had uh, when they signed it mm-hmm.
0: so you both you both talked about uh, supply di- diversification in China um, so in, in my mind that 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 was a key reason why China did not Go ahead with plans to import a lot more Turkmen gas because there was a lot of um, there's a lot of potential there, and uh, you know there there was meant to be the construction of a a fourth line from Turkmenistan to to China, and I got the feeling that that was mainly put off because because of concerns about supply diversification.
1: Yes, but at the same time, I think, you know, I mean, uh, this uh, project to have a fourth line uh, with Turkmenistan and the other countries is still alive. So, you know, um, I, I would not be surprised to see some moves in that direction. Again, I mean, China is a huge market and you have so many variables that you have to understand in order to get the lng equation or the supply equation right i mean you need to look at demand which depends on so many things from you know mm-hmm. the nuclear the wind the solar energy build up the whole of coal you know i mean coal equals security of supply in mm-hmm. the mindset of chinese uh, Policy makers. And then we have domestic production, which is very significant. I mean, people do not realize that China is one of the largest gas producers in the world. And then you have the pipeline gas coming from different places, in particular Central Asia and Warsaw, Myanmar, plays a very small role. And then you have all this LNG and the rapid buildup of LNG um, terminals and a significant also diversification in terms of players. It's no longer the big freeze. It's a big freeze plus a lot of second tier players, which is very, very interesting to the extent that I don't know whether we can talk about, you know, China LNG because it's China LNG, but with a lot of different players with different strategies.
2: Yeah, no, no. I think perhaps to add to what Anne-Sophie stated, I mean, the crisis today is for me a, a proof by absurd that gas and nuclear are needed for energy transition. Uh, Anne-Sophie mentioned coal and, and China will need to uh, move away from coal, that's even the Chinese uh, strategy. Mm-hmm. So if you think this, this means that uh, um, China gas demand is going to continue to grow massively uh, in the coming years. And the, and in front of this, the Chinese officials have understood that uh, they need more gas from more countries. And so therefore, diversification of supply will be the key uh, element in the strategy. But if you're Demand is growing, having more gas coming from Turkmen is, is also acceptable, I would believe. And final element, I think that China it may be thinking of a next trick to play. I mean, if uh, Europe doesn't understand that uh, gas and renewable are needed for the energy transition and think about the mistakes the European uh, leaders made, I mean, we've talked for hours, weeks, months in Brussels about the taxonomy. And um, if uh, the uh, nuclear and gas are needed for this energy transition, and we are not in position to have those because we haven't signed contracts. And uh, as Sophie stated, I mean, I'm not so sure there are some LNG contracts available uh, now. Um, mm-hmm. Then uh, we will need to reroute this gas from China when China wants it at China's prices, uh, mm-hmm. And this will be in summer when China wants it, not in winter, because in winter, uh, the uh, uh, Chinese Communist Bureau I stated very clearly that uh, LNG must go to China, that is, a uh, contracted LNG needs to go to China if it's contracted for China.
0: Mm-hmm. So classing nuclear and, and gas in, in the taxonomy as, as green, let's say, um, do you think that is mostly a symbolic victory, considering the, the stringent uh, conditions that, that investments must must qualify for?
2: Yes, I think we've wasted uh, hours and hours. I mean, uh, first of all, there are those very stringent conditions that nobody can meet, first of all. And secondly, Mm -hmm. I mean, who's going to uh, pay with private money a nuclear plant? And who's going to pay with private money a new CCGT in Europe? Nobody. So it's just something that uh, policymakers on the 31st of December 2021 uh, realized, oh, uh, we are going through an energy crisis and we need to find solutions. But this is not the right answer to uh, the problem. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, okay, okay. I mean, a, a nuclear plant is obviously a huge, huge undertaking. But uh, what about a modern uh, gas plant? I mean, why, why don't you think private investors would would get into that?
2: I don't think they will. I, 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 I yeah, think we have why, enough. why not? I, I, I don't think. I think uh, we have enough, and so it will be a question of. Uh, uh, using the one we have a little bit more. I mean, if we want mm-hmm. to have a successful energy transition, I think we've seen one country that did it, uh, which is the UK. I mean, the UK, when you look at the EU28, that, uh, that was the best in class in CO2 emission reduction. Uh, and this has been done in the UK thanks to the carbon uh, floor price. And uh, the carbon floor price, what did it made, it made the UK... Uh, doing what everybody thought was the right thing to do, i.e. coal Mm -hmm. to gas to renewable switch. Uh, We we can't do it the other way around. There is no uh, uh, magical way of doing it. If we don't do it this way, we are going uh, to use more coal and uh, 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 burn uh, more coal and create more emissions.
1: The problem is that right now, because of the crisis, I mean, it's very difficult to say we are going to decommission coal because actually coal is being brought back because it's needed. So there is really a question mark about what is going to happen in Eastern Europe, which was very keen to basically invest into CCGTs. And that was, you know, the whole point of the taxonomy and the natural gas part in the taxonomy, which was to say, okay, I mean, you know, we are going to use natural gas as a transition. We are going to decommission the coal fire plants and then you will have gas with some very stringent conditions, but you will have a natural gas fire plant, and then we are going to wait until you know there is a buildup of uh, renewable, but also, I mean, in Eastern Europe, they are also very keen on having nuclear at the same time. And now yeah. with that crisis, everything is put in question, are we going to keep coal longer? Is there going to be any natural gas being built? I mean, who wants to come forward with a plan to build a natural gas fire plant right now in Europe? I mean, seriously.
2: And, and and perhaps and to, add we'll to add, finance it, yeah. And perhaps to add to what Anzevi stated, I mean, uh, in Eastern state, it's mostly state-owned companies, so mm-hmm. it's not private money. Sure, sure. Um, okay.
0: Uh, any closing remarks before we 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 end the webinar?
1: Well, next year is going to be very complicated, and I think you know uh, <laughs> we have done. Quite a lot on supply. I think there is still a question on how exactly Europe wants to position itself on the LNG side because we see that countries like China, so this contract that I mentioned is a thirtieth sign of a uh, the period January 21 since today. So it's wow. a lot of LNG which has been basically contracted by China. In Europe, very little has been contracted. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, a lot of sellers are looking at Europe thinking, what is Europe doing? Well, Europe is basically stuck between the need to import a lot of LNG now in the short and medium term and the long term objectives of decarbonization. So European players don't know what to do. But there is also a lot to be done on the demand side. And sometimes <clears throat> I really wonder about these sort of blanket tariffs, you know, and we are protecting everybody. I think some consumers can reduce their consumption. I'm talking about the households here. Some consumers can reduce their consumption, but you have to protect the vulnerable ones. That's absolutely crucial to avoid the region, zone but at the European scale.
2: Sure, of course. Thierry? But perhaps a very bleak conclusion from my side. I've stated that uh, I EU always expect one. <laughs> had zero knowledge in energy, but I'm also not so sure right now that they have the willingness to solve this crisis. Mm-hmm. It goes back to what uh, and sophie stated. And so far uh, we've seen uh, they haven't done anything yet to solve the crisis. So I think uh, we are entering the uh, hard part of the crisis this winter, and perhaps they will have to stop with dogmatic ideas and move into pragmatism, but so far it hasn't been the case.
0: Okay, well, thank you both for the discussion today and thank you to everyone who has tuned in. This has been a Natural Gas World webinar. We look forward to seeing you next time.